0: This is Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. We live in a world of an abundance of stuff, but a scarcity of meaning and purpose. On Philosophy, we explore how a philosophy of life can help us pursue meaningful endeavors and prepare for the future while enjoying today. Money is entangled in almost every aspect of modern life, so any serious inquiry for self-knowledge and personal development requires an exploration of the meaning of money. We'll learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, philosophers, investors, historians, and others to help us think better, work better, invest better, build better, and live better. This show is brought to you by Vermillion Private Wealth. Thanks for being a part of this quest. Welcome to Philosophy. I'm James Vermillion, and today's guest is Brian Patterson. Brian is the executive director of the Glasser Institute for Choice Theory. Brian has been involved in choice theory and reality therapy since 2003, when he discovered the effectiveness of the concepts in working with at-risk students. If you haven't heard of choice theory, you are not alone. I only recently was introduced to Dr. Glasser and his works, but was immediately interested in his ideas and thoughts on human behavior. Dr. Glasser was an innovator and his work highlights personal choice and responsibility. Here are a few quotes from Dr. Glasser that I found insightful. If everyone could learn that what is right for me does not make it right for anyone else, the world would be a much happier place. It is not kindness to treat unhappy people as helpless, hopeless, or inadequate, no matter what has happened to them. Kindness is having faith in the truth and that people can handle it and use it for their benefit. True compassion is helping people help themselves. While it is possible that we do know what is right for others, unless they agree with us, trying to force this knowledge on them usually is a disaster. If you look around at your family and friends, you will see that the happiest people are the ones who don't pretend to know what's right for others and don't try to control anyone but themselves. These are just a few of the concepts and ideas that will be discussed with Brian today. And unfortunately, Dr. Glasser passed in 2013, but his important work continues through the Glasser Institute, and I'm happy to share this important conversation with Brian Patterson. Enjoy. Hello, Brian. Welcome to Philosophy. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you. James, is really... Good to be with you I appreciate the time
0: I recently discovered choice therapy and found it really interesting I'm not sure how many people know of dr. Glasser how many people are familiar with choice therapy and so I feel like that might be a really appropriate place to start could you just introduce dr. Glasser talk a little bit about choice therapy where it comes from how it was developed and and maybe how it's different from many of the modern methodologies that we see today.
1: Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Glasser was uh, born in Ohio and he was uh, son of a, of a jeweler. His uh, dad wanted him to have a real job. And so he pushed him into, he got into chemical engineering and uh, Dr. Glasser then graduated from, I think case Western reserve university in Ohio was um, went into a job as a chemical engineer, and he hated it. And uh, he was drafted into the Army. This was about, I think it was 1946. And uh, he went to the Army. When he came out, he knew that he, when he was getting his bachelor's, he had taken a couple of psychology courses, and that fascinated him. So he came back and uh, got his master's degree in psychology. One of his professors recommended that he Uh, go into the medical field, go into psychiatry. So he went back, he did that, got his uh, uh, degree in uh, uh, his MD and then his degree in psychology. And he went to California uh, to work at uh, UCLA uh, in his residency and uh, was working with uh, the veterans uh, VA hospital and with uh, Ventura School for Girls, which was delinquent girls that were pregnant were sent to a, a facility. And he was their psychiatrist. He began to apply a lot of the things he'd learned, and he did not, did not agree with the Freudian approach, uh, which kind of put him in the maverick status right away. But he found some other <laughs> doctors that felt the same way, and they said, they said uh, he said, I just don't believe that you're controlled by things from outside. And they said, join the club. So he began to study and to apply things. He wrote his first book a few years later on mental health or mental illness and uh, just went from there. Um, his uh, book writing, his, his philosophy came through in a lot of different areas. He began to teach other counselors. He began to write books, he said, uh, because in counseling, what he was doing with people, they got better and they didn't have to come back. So to maintain his income, he started writing books, and uh, so a lot of things came from that. It became very effective in the educational sphere and in schools, and that was the big um, emphasis of it—to teach teachers how to work with students' basic needs and uh, not just the top-down authoritarian approach. And it's very, um, mm-hmm. you know, a generationally changing a lot of times people would take the classes, begin to apply it, and then they just kind of go off on their own as far as what they were trying to do. And, uh, the Institute I think started in 1987, I believe. And it's all over the world. Uh, the European association for reality therapy is huge in Europe, uh, in the United States. It's not quite as big in psychiatry because Dr. Glasser did not, um, believe in using medication for psychological problems And so Mm. it was very revolutionary. And of course the pharmaceutical company doesn't like that too much either, I guess. No. No, I bet not. But uh uh, and my experience when I came to it was uh um I I had been working with a nonprofit, it closed, so suddenly I was out of work. I had an education degree. I had taught high school before I went to a charter school. And ask if they need any help. It was a Turner school for at risk high school kids. And uh, I got a job there, started part time. Two weeks later, I was full time and uh, working a night session with kids who had been kicked out of every other school or came with their probation officer, things like that. And uh, I thought, and I could not reach these kids. I was really confused. Uh, I kept looking. You remember newspapers? You remember? I used to have classified, <laughs> <Barely>. <laughs> classified ads in the back, so I'd come home, look at Help Wanted, circle things, think, maybe that'd be better, because I, I felt like a failure. And uh, yeah. I picked up part of the trick, because I started like in December, and I picked up a uh, one of their training manuals, and in it, there was a poorly copied chapter two of Dr. Glasser's Schools Without Failure. I read that, and I thought, man, this is the key. And that, that school had been based in it, but kind of gotten away from it. And um, I began to study, began to apply what I was learning, and kids responded. Uh, that, then the company asked me to be a director of a charter school, and I got to change the whole environment, create that from scratch. So with basic uh, you know, kids that have uh, been kicked out of every other school, uh, for in four years, we had one fight, and we had one incident of graffiti. And uh, so, because we the environment was changed, everything else was the same: teachers, equipment, stuff like that. But we changed the environment, teaching kids choice theory, and uh, it was pretty. It was amazing to me. It's just like I was just putting into place and watching how people grew. Uh, from being able to experience this, that, you know, it's responsibility. It's freedom uh, is included in the psychology of it. So uh, Dr. Glasser passed, uh, well, it was 10 years ago now, and uh, our organization has continued on, you know, teaching these concepts worldwide. And uh, I, I work specifically with the organization in, uh, in the United States. We're always looking for more ways to, uh, get the message out and to find ways for people to live better lives.
0: Thanks, Brian. I think that's a really lovely introduction to Dr. Glasser. And when I think about his work, um, what I've researched so far and what I've learned um, to this point about choice therapy, one of the parts I found especially compelling, especially for me through the lens of my professional domain, which is helping people um, with their investments, thinking about their futures, um, planning, uh, you know, their financial lives and all of these things is this kind of concept that people aren't broken. Um, I think it goes a little bit counter to many of the modern treatments and and views on solving problems and working with people. Um, but it's it's not that you're broken. You're not a damaged person. You're doing the best that you can given these situations that you've had, the experiences that you've had. And I think that's a really interesting and helpful framework to empowering people to make the changes that they need to make, uh, to do what they, to achieve what they want to achieve. Can you talk a little bit about that concept? Um, and what, what role it plays in choice therapy and reality therapy?
1: Well, cause the, you know, the motivation to make changes has to come from within. And most uh, psychological approaches and management approaches too uh, are uh, external and judgmental. And uh, one of the things about Dr. Glasser taught in counseling and in schools that uh, you're non-coercive, non-judgmental. So rather than saying there's something wrong with you, you would start by asking the person what they perceive, and uh, mm-hmm. I'll give you uh, you know four step process that we use in that that was um, from that comes from reality therapy. One of the biggest proponents is a guy named uh, uh, Dr. Robert Wobelding. He's from Cincinnati University of Cincinnati and uh, Xavier, I think university there mm-hmm. and he's uh but anyway he put it into four steps glasser's concept into what do you want what are you doing evaluate and plan so for instance for example if i had a student who wasn't doing well uh academically i'd say you know when you walk in the door what is it you really want from school well i want to graduate and what are you doing right now the You know, skipping school three days a week—how's that working? Well, it's not. So, how can I help you plan something different? Teaching people that they they have options in the way they think about things, rather than saying that's wrong. Stop doing that, because most most of us don't respond well to that anyway. You could ask my wife, Uh, but uh, those (laughs) things are (laughs) those things are really important to understand that the motivation comes from inside. So. We, and Dr. Glasser always said, everyone's doing the best thing they know at the time. Uh, That doesn't mean we we leave them alone and it's okay. It doesn't mean it's good for society, but we have to go within, help them go within and see why isn't this matching with what I want? Those kind of things, uh, you know, helped me so much with students uh, that, you know, it was even if somebody was. You know, asked to leave because they weren't doing what they're supposed to do. It was because they had already agreed to something, and what they were doing wasn't matching. So, you know, come back next semester and let's start over. That's kind of a different approach rather than uh, them, you know, right. feeling like they had been kicked out. It was external control, which they always fought against. Uh, so, it that that approach has been, I think, is um, revolutionary. And because it doesn't give the other person a lot of control or feeling of control, uh, sometimes people in management, in certain um, helping professions, don't like it because then they don't feel like they're in control. I had a charter school director that was one of my colleagues when I was teaching this, and uh, she was came from an accounting background. It was very black and white, you know, for her, and she liked to be in mm-hmm. control. Sure. We were teaching these things, and she began to try it because she was frustrated. She was losing students, losing teachers. And uh, she called me one day, and she said, you know, I discovered that when I began to give up control, I gained control. And so it was. now she's a principal of a huge high school here in Arizona. And uh, it was just interesting to see the difference in the approach and how it affected her and affected her work
0: listeners of philosophy or anyone who knows me knows that I'm a huge fan of the Stoics. I find the philosophy especially helpful um, today. I think it's very balanced in many ways and that, you know, I've done other episodes on that, so we don't need to get into that now, but I did find a lot of parallels between the Stoics and what Dr. Glasser was saying. And I'm curious, do you know of any research Dr. Glasser might've done into the Stoics or any links um, between his work and what the Stoics were saying.
1: You know, it may have been influential to him, uh, but I don't. I don't remember anything specifically that he that he said. And you know, I've got I've got all all of his books here, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't uh, I don't recall anything like that. As I change my thinking, thinking along the. Glasser perspective, a lot of the stoic quotes, you know, fit very, very well. So I see a lot of things that support what we did and a lot of things that choice theory explains about other concepts.
0: I want to be clear here, Ryan, I am, am no expert in choice therapy. It's something I've recently discovered, something I'm very curious about. And I think based on what I know so far could have um, far reaching applications Uh, both for me personally and for others. So that's why I wanted to have you on to talk about choice therapy because you are an expert. Uh, But one thing that really stuck out to me is the emphasis on not being able to control other people. And I know I have this tendency, I think all of us do, have this tendency to want to control other people. Not always in a negative way, But we want them to make the decisions that we want them to make, that we think we would make in their situations. And this is an important part from what I can tell of choice therapy, that you cannot control anybody else except for yourself. And I think understanding that can be very freeing once you can let that go and just focus on
1: yourself. Yeah, that was, especially like working as a teacher, that that was revolutionary, you know, because... You know the old concept was you're not to, supposed to smile until Christmas, you know, so that you can maintain and they talk about classroom management, classroom control. and uh, yeah. the, the way you do it is by building the relationship uh, to where you know students didn't uh, they didn't want to make anything bad happen in the classroom. They didn't want to be responsible for messing things up. Uh, it built that kind of relationship by having that respect where, uh, for instance, I had a, a student once say, you know, I just want to walk out of here. And I said, well, you can do that. And he said, you're not going to stop me. I said, no, you know, I'm too old. I don't tackle people anymore. Uh, but, uh, I can let you, you can walk out. He said, well, and then he stopped me. He said, well, then what happened? I said, well, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to let you back in because you violated the agreement and we'd have to put you on the waiting list. There's about 80 people. And as soon as your name comes up, we'd be glad to interview you again and bring you back. And so he went back and sat down. Uh, I had another one come and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave. And I did the same thing. And he said, Well, what if I kill you right now? And he was big enough; he could probably do it. And I said, Well, you could do that, but you still can't get back in if you leave. And uh, <laughs> so he was looked at me very puzzled because you know there was no fight. There's no. It's kind of like the um, Martial arts of Aikido, where you're not attacking ever. You're trying to be in the position where the other person is all the time. And when students felt like that, they could relax. They changed their whole perspective about what school was about. And um, you didn't have to control them, they could control themselves. And when they figured that out, they enjoyed life a lot better because it wasn't like everybody's pushing me around, everybody hates me. And I've got to fight back all the time. Um, you know, they just didn't have to do that anymore. They'd look, they'd watch what somebody else did and say, you know, that's you. I don't have to do that. And uh, we had a lot of conversations about different things that, you know, kind of prevented some of the things that would normally happen because their main emotion was anger. And so I had to ask yeah. them, you know, what are you angry about? What are you thinking? Because from a Glasser perspective, total behavior Thinking and acting are the things you control. Your feelings and physiology follow that. And when uh, students would say, "Well, oh, I'm feeling angry," I said, "Well, what else could what could you do differently?" You know, you could go stand on one foot. You know, try, and they would start to laugh. I said, "Does that help?" <laughs> you know, because they were just thinking something different, and uh, it changed their emotion. So they began to understand that in any situation. If a motion came up that was negative, they could change it by thinking or doing something differently. And so they became more responsible and like you said, freer. And uh, you know I still 10 years later, I get calls from students that uh, talk about they remember something we talked about in class about choice theory. It, it was life-changing for them. even though their backgrounds or family support may not have been there. they learned how to take responsibility for themselves.
0: Yeah, I really believe that empowerment and feeling like you have control over your own life is really important. And I think today we have a major deficit of that across society, whether that's just life trajectory in general, whether that's financially, whether that's just a feeling that the world is so chaotic and there's nothing we can do about it people feel out of control and people who don't feel like they have control over their own lives can become desperate and desperate people can become dangerous both to others and to themselves. So I think this sense of empowerment is really, really important. I would like to switch gears just a little bit because choice theory identifies five basic needs, uh, survival, love and belonging, power, freedom, and fun. Can you walk us through those five basic needs and what role they play in our lives?
1: Sure, it's, a, it would be kind of, it's different than like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that a lot of people have seen that you know, for me is like uh-huh. one of the worst things to, to think about because it's, it's not really accurate from my perspective. Dr. Glasser identified these five basic needs that, that uh, drive every behavior in some way. And so survival would be all those things, you know, breathing, money, things like that that you have to have to live. And um, love and belonging is having a sense of belonging to a group, being accepted, being cared for, or having people to care for. So it kind of goes both directions on that. The power need really is expressed in three different ways. There's power over, which would be like you know Saddam Hussein or Hitler or something like that. There's uh, power with, which said uh, I'm, I'm from St. Louis. You can tell uh, St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. You know if they overwin, it's because the team works together, and uh, the pitching helps too. You know those kind of things. And the <laughs> third is power with power within, which is a spiritual. It's like Mother Teresa, Gandhi, you know, people like that uh, who were saying, you know, I'm headed over here. You can come with me if you want. But people would follow because the intensity of that. Uh, But they had a high power. you know, Mother Teresa uh, scolded Bill Clinton about uh, abortion one time, you know. And so uh, that was a high power need. I I want to be helpful. I want to make a difference in the lives of people in India or wherever it might be. That's a high power need, but it can be a positive thing. It's not ne- power is not negative necessarily. Uh, the uh, mm-hmm. freedom is uh, to be able to do things the way I want. You know, that everybody has that uh, that um, need in them. And then fun was uh, to have enjoyment. Doctor Glasser talked about schools, and he said that fun is a genetic reward reward of learning that sense of satisfaction, the endorphins or flow from the brain. You know, it's like he didn't believe in chemical imbalances. The chemicals are a result of the thoughts, not the, not the reverse. And uh, so those five things, but everybody has a different combination of those. So, for instance, uh, like in Maslow, the uh, survival is the dominant one. And Dr. Glasser would say, well, how do you explain suicide? Why would people accept take that behavior, if that is the dominant need, then it's not. And like for my students, you know, they would take all kinds of drugs sometimes at parties just to be part of the fun, uh, even though it might put them in the hospital. You know, some of them actually at times one or two overdose uh, because of that. So they would risk survival for that love and belonging or fun need or power. Mm -hmm. And uh, you may have known some people in military that would uh, risk their survival for something else. You know, that's uh, because you're, everybody has a different, there's no hierarchy. It's all, everybody has a different perspective on that.
0: I think of these as being on a spectrum and we all need them, each of them, but in different doses. When I look at myself, freedom is very important to me. I do not like being told what to believe what to do, what to think. So freedom is very high. I would be on the far right end of that spectrum. Whereas someone else may not need as much freedom, um, but maybe they require more loving and belonging. Maybe they value a sense of community a little bit more than I do. So it's not to say that we're choosing one over the other. We need them all, but just different people might value them a little bit differently than somebody else.
1: Well, so let me ask you this, James: uh, Do you see internally? Yep. Do you ever see any conflict between those?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and absolutely, I think quite a bit of conflict <laughs> that I have between those, actually.
1: But I know that you know freedom versus love and belonging. Sometimes you have to you make a choice as to which one, at that point, is more important. And so, teaching people how to do that uh, effectively. And and building relationships where they can realize that this is a choice makes such a difference yeah. in yeah. life. And if you have two people involved in a relationship, they all they both perceive all of these five differently. So it's that's why the uh, the humble inquiry the uh, the questions come in asking questions about you know how do you see this situation rather than assuming that I'm right and so everybody should go along with me. Uh, makes a big difference in, uh, in, in the corporate world too. I work for the state of Arizona. I work, I do training for uh, about 8,000 people in Lean Six Sigma mainly, but there's a lot of choice theory that creeps into it and uh, about the relationship between leaders and uh, employees, things like that, and helping people see how do we do this? You know, I ask them, well, how could you do that? They'll give me a plan. I say, well, what else could you do? And it's interesting to watch the facial expression when that happens. And after they come up with something else, I ask them, what else could you do? Until they exhaust that, and then they realize that within their own brain, there are so many different options about how to approach things. It changes people to make them more uh, introspective in a lot of ways and uh, to consider how does this affect the relationship. And that part just makes it really fun. Uh, Because mainly you help people get this by just asking questions.
0: I think the lens of five needs can be helpful in making major life decisions as well. For example, if a couple is thinking about having a child, it's useful to think about how having that child will impact those five areas. Uh, For example, I have a three-year-old daughter and I can tell you, much freedom was given up um, and is given up to raise her. But I get so much back on the loving um, part of the five needs. So as an economist, I love thinking about trade-offs and costs and benefits. So I think this can be a useful framework in doing that for life decisions.
1: Absolutely. And people realize realizing that, that those are hardwired into you. How you learn to meet those needs can change through life you know 'cause for example, I had people uh talking about retirement and say, "Well don't the, the needs change? Could I had a really high power need working, and uh now I'm going to retire, so I feel like i don't need I don't have the power need. I said, "Well, how much control do you want to be in of your retirement? Oh, I don't want anybody tell me what to do. I said, "Is that a power need you know so power and freedom a lot of times are really close together and helping people realize that uh, your, your life can change because now, for example, being a father, uh, there's a different way you express those same needs because now that mm-hmm. love and belonging has a little different picture to it. And uh, that's what yeah, you know, we were going to talk about, quality world. And the quality world is the picture that you have Of how those needs are should be met every time. So, and working with finances, I'm sure you see different levels of survival need with people. Some people are will take a lot more risk than others because that's the way their brain is wired. So, if you can tap into one of the other needs, uh, you know, looking at the future, take care of your family, whatever, it might change that perspective a little bit because they have to weigh between the two. you know, which is most important right now and what's most important in the future.
0: That's a great point you brought up, Brian. And it reminds me of a problem I've seen in my practice in working with clients. I've seen it in family members. I've heard about it occurring in other people. And that is this idea that people in preparation for retirement have these grand ideas of what they're going to do and how happy they're going to be and how much more freedom they're going to have to pursue their hobbies and um, catch up on all the the parts of life that they've been missing while they were working you know 10 hours a day. But then retirement comes and three, three months go by or six months go by and they're absolutely miserable. They're bored out of their minds and they just don't know what to do with themselves. And I think part of that is because they didn't consider the trade-offs. Maybe now they're missing some of that power need that they had, um, let's say if they were a manager, but they didn't factor that in to their decision-making.
1: Well, and that's a good point, because one other piece of power I didn't talk about is competence. Uh, The people want to feel like they're accomplishing something, and some people have a very high need for that. Some is pretty medium. And... uh, also, getting recognized for things you accomplish when you get retired, there's not much rec- recognition after that. Uh, I'd gone through a situation where I was working with uh, Goodwill of Central Northern Arizona doing leadership development, and because of COVID, I was laid off with a whole bunch of other people, and uh, I thought about retiring, uh, but um, you know, I, I felt like i've got i still have things to do i've still got something to offer and so i came back to working for the state of arizona and uh, you know it's it's like i don't know what i do with my time all the time uh, it, you know if i had all day with nothing no direction and uh, you know for all these years i've had some direction of what i'm supposed to do and uh, a lot of times i try to avoid that but uh, still it, it it has a track to kind of run on, which makes sense. When you take away those guardrails, and you don't have something planned for that, I think uh, I think that power need could be uh, you know very significant. And we've overestimated our freedom need.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's and you you touched on the quality world, your quality world, mm-hmm. um, and you you kind of briefly. Summarized it or defined it, but can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's an interesting phrase, and I think could be a useful framework for people.
1: Well, it's Glasser picked up the concept of quality from W. Edwards Deming, who was kind of the leader of the Japanese recovery after World War II, and uh, which led to Lean and the quality of Toyota and different companies like that. And he, he began to understand that all of us have this picture of our own world of quality in those five basic needs. So what does um, survival look like to me? Uh, what does love and belonging look like? And usually that comes from a relationship like with the mother or something like that growing up, uh, which could be negative sometimes. And uh, what does power look like? If I grew up in a neighborhood that was run by gangs, I've got a little different concept of that. And uh, so a lot of people have this quality world picture that they're always trying. Every behavior is about trying to get that picture to look right. Uh, So if my perceived world doesn't match the real world and the way I want things to look, then I begin to automatically go into some kind of behavior that, Worked last time, so I'm going to try it again. So your, your brain does that. It's uh, like a, uh, it's a negative loop, like a uh, thermostat, for instance, like your home cooling or heating system. That As soon as the thermometer sees you're below the temperature you want, it kicks in. It starts to work. So the human behavior system is like that, where that picture of my quality world doesn't look right, the behavior system kicks in to try to get it, get it back. I'm going to fix it, you know, basically inside. Mm. And a lot of times those are negative behaviors that continue to create less control rather than more control. So the quality world is a picture everybody has in their head uh, of how things should look when I get this need met perfectly.
0: This is really great, Brian, because already I'm finding so much potential utility for Dr. Glasser's ideas and choice theory in my practice and in helping my clients. And someone might ask, what does psychology and behavioral therapy and, you know, just these ideas have to do with investing and with money? But for me, it's everything because if you can understand what drives somebody and you can understand what motivates somebody and you can understand why somebody's struggling In certain areas, then I think you can do a whole heck of a lot more to help them than if you just sit down and spit out a financial plan and wish them the best of luck because you've got to get to the root of the problems. And the root of the problem usually isn't just a numbers or a money problem. It's something else.
1: Well, I think like using the quality world concept, if people are thinking about retirement, uh, you would, uh, you know, pull out those different aspects. What would survival look like? Uh, What what are they going to take financially to survive? You know, because if they retired 65, they may live another 30 years. What's it going to require? What would love and belonging look like after I retire? And what's that have to do with my finance? You know, well, we've been waiting to, we've been wanting to go on that trip to France, you know, all of our lives. And so, that would be a big accomplishment for the two of us, that kind of thing, would be the love and belonging aspect. Power, where you can make decisions about, uh, you know, where am I going to live, things like that. I don't have to wait for the state to take care of me or, or the VA hospital or whatever it might be. And uh, freedom, that there's enough income there, even with inflation, things like that, uh, that I can still make my own choices. If I want a different car, I can buy one. Um, you know, those kinds of things. If I want to take another trip, I can. And then uh, fun. What does fun look like, you know, when you're retired? And how are we going to make sure that that's adequately paid for? So I would think that uh, uh, that would be, uh, could I use that quality world picture with with everybody, you know, to help understand what are your objectives, where are you going? And then you break it down into those five pieces where it's very specific. It makes a big difference in what are our strategies to get there. Well, this is
0: great. Here we are developing a new framework live for financial planning. And, you know, obviously that's an exaggeration, but I think we can apply this framework to financial planning. And I think it's really useful. And I'll give you an example. If you ask somebody, what's your vision of retirement? What does retirement look like to you? Most people really don't know. It's such a big question. And I think part of my job is to help them answer that question. And so if I can look at the five areas that Dr. Glasser identified, I can start to break that question down into smaller bits, into smaller chunks, and really help them digest each of these areas and come up with, with something, you know, reasonable, something realistic, um, and and help them develop their idea for what the future might look like or what they would like it to look like. And we can go from there. So it provides a a different type of starting point than I think most people are used to.
1: Yeah. Cause that can be too ambiguous. And it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, where do you start even thinking about it? Especially if you haven't experienced it, you're not close to it. You don't really know what it looks like. You see what you don't want. Sometimes you can start there. Uh, cause people say, well, I don't know. Uh, what well, think about what is it you don't want and start to write those things down. What's the opposite. Sometimes you can work uh, work on things that way as well.
0: Yes, I I agree. Inversion can be a very powerful mental tool. You know, in even in the investment world, if you are having trouble thinking about a company and what could make them good, it helps sometimes to flip that problem on its head and ask what could cause this company to fail. What what are the challenges going to be? What setbacks could this company face? And then you can start to kind of tackle the problem from reverse, basically. So I think that can be really useful.
1: Oh, I was, one, one more thing I was thinking about. Yeah. Uh, I always yeah. look at, because my focus is really in a part of what Glasser taught was called lead management, which he focused mainly on schools, but I think it has a huge, huge uh, impact on business thinking and leading from this perspective. He wrote a book in 94. It's called uh, Control Theory Manager, where he incorporated a lot of dimming stuff and his own concepts into leadership. But then that education piece took off, and that's where he took it. And it's like it's, it's laying there. It's, it's wonderful, I think, for, for business and organization. And I'm, I'm looking to expand that further as to how can we make this a real avenue of of teaching, you know, for people who are in business, people who uh, in the workplace can improve things and they don't even know it yet. <clears throat> Excuse me, but that's uh, that's one of the things anyway that I think is really important. So what's what's the businesses quality world look like? How does it match with what mine does? And that's those would be the people I'd want to invest in that have a matching. Uh, you know, quality picture or worldview in some ways uh, that, that I do. And it's hard to figure out, but I think each organization has its own personality. So within the group, yeah. it has this, yeah. these same five characteristics. And I, I haven't developed that as far as I want to yet, but that's kind of what I'm working on. How do we apply this in a larger sense uh, for people who are at work or leading other people?
0: Now you've really got me thinking, and I have this tendency to invest in founder-led companies. I've had much more success investing in founder-led companies, and I've never really understood why, but maybe it's because it's easier to identify where those five basic needs fit in. And I'll give you an example of a founder-led company. Usually the mission is very clear. They started the company. They had a very identifiable problem that they were seeking to solve and that they're usually very passionate about. And I think once that company matures and they're on their 10th CEO and the importance has shifted from the mission to quarterly results and short-term performance, you lose something. Maybe just maybe that explains a little bit about why I have you know this tendency, why I like to invest in founder-led companies. I'm going to think more about this one. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah, it becomes uh, more nebulous when you don't have one per- one person. And I've heard that there are three different kinds of organization. There's the person-centered, and purpose-centered, and problem-centered. And and we've dealt with this because when Dr. Glasser was around, we were very person-centered. Now it's how do you bring the purpose clear to where everybody agrees this is where we're headed, this is our company's, our organization's quality world picture, and how do we get there is the next step. A lot of times, companies and organizations will use their, you know, their mission statement as their vision, and it's it's really it's not clear here's what we're doing, but where are we headed? And uh, and that's even with our organization. I try to make sure we keep, you know, what's the picture look like when we do what we want to do? What's it going to look like in the world around us? And so that's what yeah. we're looking at. That's what drives us.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that's an incredibly useful way to think about it. Um, I did want to move forward to a piece that, Confused me a little bit. I wasn't quite sure I was getting the gist of the idea. And that is that all behavior is purposeful and total. Can you talk a little bit about what that means?
1: Well, like we said in in that negative loop, when the uh, thermostat's been set off, uh, the behavior is the solution, is the perceived solution. So uh, the behavior is about getting me back to where. I feel like I'm headed to the quality world picture. And it could be, you know, a toddler in the supermarket stomping their feet because they can't get a candy bar. Um, you know, and that changes a little bit as you become an adult, but sometimes not so much. But the uh, behavior is part of the system. Uh, it's, it's like a loop. It's to get things back. But it, uh, Dr. Glasser identified those four components of thinking acting feeling and physiology and he compared it to a front wheel drive car and uh like the engine is the basic needs uh, you know that you're the you're the driver and the front wheels are uh, thinking and acting so the back wheels feeling and physiology follow where the uh, thinking and acting go he said that in his estimation that we have 100% control of our actions and we have about ninety percent control of our thinking, and so feeling and physiology we have no direct control. And I used to do a, an exercise uh, with people. I'd say, "Be sad, be happy," and then ask people, "How did you do that?" Well, I had to think about something that was sad. I had to think about something that was happy. So the thinking led to the feeling is very clear. Then I'd say, you know, uh, lower your blood pressure, and uh, or, uh, you know, raise your uh, good cholesterol. Well, I'd have to go back and check on my diet. So there's something you have to do to change that physiology. So just helping people see that. Uh, some people with or sometimes talk about the, uh, the rear wheels emotion, like uh, being, in, being driving the car, and it doesn't. It's still the emotions a, a result of what you've been thinking. And so it can be easy, uh, simple, it's a, not easy, but simple uh, to change that feeling. So, for instance, if I had mm. students come in and they were very angry, you could tell by the pupils, their eyes and their clenched fists, and they came in, I'd say, Oh, where'd you get those shoes? And they'd look down at their shoes, and immediately you could see that the, the level the negative energy changed. Because they did something. I called attention. They thought about it, They did something differently. And then we could talk. And uh, so, it it came very clear that it's pretty simple. The other thing I did, when there was some behavior we wanted to analyze, we would sit down, and we had what we called a behavior wheel, which was a wheel with four, com- four quadrants, with the thinking, acting, feeling, and physiology. So, if a student got up and was almost in a fight, was angry with somebody, I'd ask him, "Well, what were you thinking?" Well, I was thinking he said something racist to me, and so we would write little spokes out from the wheel about what you were thinking and uh, wh- how were you acting. Well, I, you know, I wasn't doing my schoolwork. My heart was pumping. You know, I said, "Well, that goes in physiology." How are you feeling? Well, I was angry. And once, one kid said one time. Uh, I said, were you feeling anything else? He said, I was feeling sad, which kind of threw me off a little bit. I thought it was interesting. I said, sad? Why were you feeling that? He said, well, I didn't think uh, we treated people that way here. I thought that was amazing because he saw an environment that was different, and he was able to distinguish something that didn't fit. And uh, what he thought about it caused that feeling. So then I'd say, well, let's look at take the same wheel, same situation, what would you like to be thinking? And he said, well, I'd like to be thinking I'm getting my work done, uh, that uh, you know, we have a good place here, things like that. And we would do the whole for, uh, you know, what were you feeling? What would you like to be feeling? What would you like to be acting? How would you like your physiology to be? I don't want my blood pressure up, things like that. So then I would turn the, the paper around and say, which one, Is really you, and they almost always choose the one on the right, the positive, what they wanted things to be, and then we start to say, "Well, what steps can you take to get there, to change your behavior, uh, to change your thinking, to change your acting, change your feelings, change your physiology?" And they would, when we're done, a lot of times they would say, "Can I take that paper with me?" And I would say only on one condition: we're gonna we're gonna tear the left side off. So they would, and a lot of times at the end of the year, I'd find a notebook with that right side still stuck in there, of what their objectives are, how they wanted to think, how they wanted to act, how they wanted to feel, and how they wanted their physiology. And it was pretty. Uh, I mean, it would you could feel the energy shift, where they felt like they were in control of this, where before. You know, the the concept of triggers uh, does not fit with uh, Glasser at all, because it's what you do with it inside. It's not, you know, somebody else doesn't control you. He made me mad. You know, do you really want him to control your life? (laughs) No. Well, how else could you respond in that situation? And one girl said, well, I could just think he's an idiot. I said, well, that probably worked. You know, and uh, (laughs) you know, so she was able to move forward and not be angry with people all the time. It's pretty. It, it was almost like magic sometimes. When you apply it, uh, it's, it's pretty neat. The other part, difficulty in it sometimes, is applying it uh, to myself, You know, making sure that I'm following that same pattern in the way I think. So it's easy to teach it. Uh, it's, it's more difficult to live it sometimes
0: again, Brian, the parallels and the overlaps with stoicism are very strong here. And one thing that's always perplexed me is this idea that someone will make a change once the conditions are right. For example, I've heard people say things like, this is a really stressful time. As soon as it's over, I'm going to start eating better and really watching my diet. But the action needs to come first. If you want to be less stressed, Eating better is one behavior that you can influence that will create that result. The action, in other words, leads. And I think that's one point that Dr. Glasser was trying to make here.
1: Right, because we live um, in a, you know, there's constant attempts at external control and people resist against that. And yet in situations like that, you're waiting for something else to change. And yeah, you know, the question would be, uh, how's that work so far? You know, right. would, would you be willing to try something else? What, um, you know, it's what do you want? Well, I want to lose weight. What are you doing right now? Well, I'm waiting for, you know, something to change. How's that working? And then, well, it's not. Well, what could we plan differently? You know, that rather than waiting, you know, let's do, uh, you know, one. What's one thing you could do differently tomorrow that might help? And uh, yeah. you know, sometimes it takes people doing. You know, they're thinking it's a huge transformation. Uh, and one thing I've learned from Lean, it's a series of small, cheap uh, changes that have the most impact. Yeah, which fits with you know with Glasser a lot. Have you read uh, uh, Victor Frankl? It's a uh, man, yeah, search, man for search for meaning. meaning. There's a yeah, lot in incredible. what he taught yeah. that that fits with Glasser a lot. Also like even in situations mm-hmm. where there wasn't any physical freedom, uh, people still had their own degree of freedom they could manage within. and the more people decided they were going to persist and live through this, uh, you know there were some people that just gave up and you know his commentary on that yeah. was just amazing. but he said between between the stimulus and response, which is Freudian, Uh, there's a space where I have a choice. And that's, I I don't know if I read that book, but it feels like that's kind of a, a basic idea of what this is all about.
0: Yeah, and Viktor Frankl said, in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And if anyone listening hasn't read Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, I would highly highly encourage you to do so. It's a truly remarkable book, definitely on my top 10 list, maybe maybe in my top 5.
1: I think uh, you know helping people find that freedom for me is what this is all about. Uh, you know that they really have control, they realize they have control of their their responses in that and in uh, Deming's teachings uh, and the things we teach in Lean, problems are treasure. And so, you know, helping people look at things that way, it's an opportunity for improvement. Um, You know, I think that makes such a difference in the lives of everybody.
0: Something you said just a little bit ago, Brian, reminded me of the concept of the aggregation of marginal gains. And that concept was popularized by Dave Brailsford. He was a cycling coach and he took over the struggling British cycling team in 2003. And his whole approach was not to make some major transformation, not to try to change everything about the organization in a major way, but to improve every area by 1%. And those little improvements to the seat, to the nutrition, to the equipment, to the sanitation of the cyclists, everything the sleep, those would add up. Those would compound. And he was absolutely right. They went on to win, goodness, um, I can't remember, but many Olympic medals over the next several Olympics. So, you know, we don't have to change overnight. We don't have to transform ourselves necessarily, but if we can just do a little bit better and, and try to continuously improve, we can see these monumental gains over time via the compounding effect. Okay, well, let's go ahead and run through the 10 axioms of choice theory. Some of them we've already touched on throughout the conversation. Others, not as much. But I think they provide a great summary into uh, Dr. Glasser's insights. So what we'll do, I'll read them. And if you can just provide a, a very brief summary of what that axiom means and why it's important, that would be fantastic. The first one, the only person whose behavior we can control is our own.
1: And that's one of the major, major questions that, uh, always teach people is to ask in any situation, ask yourself, whose behavior do I control? And that when you start from that, then you make, you make uh, more significant. Some of the smaller changes happen now.
0: Number two, all we can give or get
1: from other people is
0: information.
1: You know, it's, it's just data coming into the brain. Uh, how we perceive it depends on—there's three filters we have, uh, according to Dr. Glasser, the senses, uh, the uh, knowledge filter, and valuing filter. So information comes in, we, whether we see it or hear it or taste it or whatever, what do we know about it? You know, we may not know anything, so it, it, we don't care and then valuing, is this important to me? Then that starts to set off that comparison with the quality world picture.
0: I really enjoyed the simplicity of that one. And the next one is all long-lasting psychological problems are relationship problems.
1: Yeah, because people don't come in for counseling because they're way too happy or they're getting along with everybody. They don't go, you know, seek help. So the things that you perceive as a problem is goes back to some relationship somewhere and thinking about, uh, usually it's having unrealistic expectations or misplaced dependencies of that other person that have changed that relationship. and now that plagues everything I do.
0: Moving along, the next one is the problem relationship is always part of our present lives.
1: Yeah, because memory and emotion, we bring that into the current day, even if it happened 20 years ago. And we're still trying to figure out what was wrong with that person, what was wrong with me in that situation. When you can't go, and Dr. Glasser didn't go to the past. You know, let's see, you know, when were you uh, potty trained? And maybe it was your mom's fault you're such so messed up right now. You know, he, he looks at what do you have control over right now? If there's something in the past that can be helpful because you were successful there, then we might bring it forward. But, uh, you know, those problem relationships we have usually are just in our perception of the relationship. If we're truly thinking I can respond differently if I want to, then all of a sudden that's not a problem relationship anymore because the person they have a problem, that's, you know, that's up to them. Changes things real significantly. For for instance, one time I was working with, uh, in California, at the California Women's Institution, uh, we had a choice theory uh, training program in the prison. And I went out and um, one lady said, well, uh, yeah, I'm coming up for my parole hearing next week. She said, but I'm not going to get it. I never do. Uh, I've been up four times, and every time they reject me. So I said, "You know, what's something that happened in your life where uh, you saw you prepared for something and it was successful?" She said, "Oh, I uh, in high school I had to give a graduation speech." I said, "Really? How did you do that?" She said, "Well, I practiced, practiced." I said, "Were you afraid of talking in front of people?" "Oh, yes, but you did it anyway. Why?" "Well, I felt like it was really important, and I had a message to get across." I said, so can you take the steps that helped you be accomplished there and apply it to your parole hearing rather than thinking about, oh, it's been really bad in the past? I said, and then we, we put together a strategy step by step how she was going to prepare for that. And she was paroled. Uh, I found out from the leader of the group about two months later that she'd been paroled. And she decided to seek a counseling degree after that. Because she had learned, learned choice theory, and she was going to be a counselor for uh, families of in, inmates. I lost track, but wow. that's what her plan was. Next, but it was just reaching back to something that was successful. Can you bring it forward? You know, we don't look at the other negative things in the past because you have no control over that. You have no control over the emotion, and uh, but if it's in the present, you do. You can think and act differently.
0: Fantastic. We're gonna go ahead and skip the next one because we've talked about it so much and it is we are driven by five genetic needs, survival, love and belonging, power, freedom and fun and we're gonna skip the next one because we also talked quite a bit about it throughout this discussion and that is we can satisfy these needs only by satisfying a picture or pictures in our quality worlds. We will pick up with all we can do from birth to death is behave. All behavior is total behavior and is made up of four inseparable components, acting, thinking, feeling, and physiology. And you touched on this a little bit, but is there anything else you'd like to say?
1: We don't usually look at our lives as behavior. And when uh, Dr. Glasser brought that forward, and, and my thoughts on that, it changed a lot. You know, my mom always told me to behave myself, but she didn't say behave yourself well. And uh, so I, I did behave. But then I'd get in trouble for something. Uh, But everything we do, if we consider it as a behavior, um, I can change my life that way. I can change my strategies. I can change what I do when I realize all I can do is behave in a certain way. And I can choose what that behavior is. makes such a difference for people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the next one is all total behavior is designated by verbs and named by the component that is most recognizable.
1: So sometimes Dr. Glasser would change the language a little bit. He'd say, uh, you know, uh, I'm having a bad day. I am depressing. You know, it's it's that I'm choosing to depress or something. It's not that uh, I am in depression. So that came from somewhere else. I'm choosing that. He would say, "I'm I'm anxietying, uh, I'm angering." You know, when you think about it that way, you think, "Man, this is silly. Why would I do this? Why would I choose to do this?" And yet, um, you know, a lot of people do that, but they, you know, they try to blame something else or someone else uh, for that uh, for that situation they're in right then. But realizing that, you know, if you want to worry, it's okay. Just say, I'm going to worry for 20 minutes, and then get over with it. And Dr. Glasser would do that in his counseling. And in role plays, it was really fun to watch him do this because he would say things that you would think, psychiatrists can't say that. But he, he was so intuitive <laughs> intuitive about reaching into people's thought process and helping them think differently. Uh, a guy he was counseling with one time, had been to like 14 other psychiatrists. And he'd been on all kinds of medications and stuff like that. And uh, the guy came in and said, Well, to Dr. Glass, he said, I read, read your book and I don't think you're right. He said, I'm just crazy. And Dr. Glass said, Well, how do you like being crazy? And uh, what does crazy look like? And the guy just looked at him like, He said, You can't say that. He said, Well, you did. So I would. And uh, the guy's life just turned around right then because all of a sudden here was somebody that was uh, just was really reflecting what he was saying and not saying, oh, you're not crazy. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was funny uh, how Dr. Glasser did that. He would use humor and paradox a lot of times to help people mm-hmm. think differently. And it was, uh, I, and I did, you know, it's, uh, you know, if I had students sleeping on their desk, and other kids would come up and say, You need to wake him up. Why is he sleeping? I said, Do you want to sleep? Go ahead. Well, I don't want to sleep. I said, Okay, well don't. And uh they were just a puzzle, they'd go back to work. And uh so if some student was sleeping and it happened a lot. a lot of times we had kids that lived in the orange groves or were homeless and they'd come to school, that was the only safe place they had. So I would I didn't want to you know, make it just about their performance, but about the relationship. So sometimes I'd go, and they'd be sitting at a computer on their desk, and I would sit down. And I said, "Do you mind if I'm really tired? Do you mind if I lay my head down here with you?" So because it seems like a safe place to sleep here. And if I did, have, you know, about three minutes, they'd say, "I'm going to work." <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it was it was just some of that paradox. Sometimes, you know, I'd say, "Go ahead and sleep. When you're done, you know, get up, and do your work." May take an extra year to graduate, but it's okay. It's safe in here. And uh, so they would have to think it through to think is this really what I want to do? And then later we'd have a conversation, uh, you know, find out why they were so tired. Is there something else they could do differently at night? Um, So, you know, things like that, just finding ways to get into a different way of thinking about it so that we could expand that thinking uh, to consider where they were going, where they're headed how their behaviors were helping them reach their goals or not.
0: That may be my favorite of the 10 axioms, Brian. And I think it sheds light on the fact that sometimes there's a real silliness to how we perceive outside events and how we take offense to things that uh, shouldn't be offensive and ruin our days over things that are, are, are really minor in the grand scheme of things. So I think that that's really helpful, and I think it's I can understand how that could be especially helpful to students who are still trying to figure out some of these things.
1: We had, in our schools, our learning centers, uh, it was like a four-hour session. It was all academics. Everybody was on their own computerized program. So there'd be like 45 students in the room, uh, all on their own computers with uh you know, four or five teachers myself in the room i didn't have a separate office i stayed out there where they were and uh, they would it was like in probably april early part of april you know that part of the school year where it just feels like it's dragging on there no holidays and think man we're never going to get done all the teachers and students were all dragging and uh, had one of our girls um they would do this every day they'd go down to the mailbox and get the mail for us and we got we received a big box of rubber bands like uh, 300 rubber bands in a box. I hadn't ordered I don't know where it came from or anything but I was thinking, hey this is a gift and uh, don't tell anybody this but uh, I was uh, I started a rubber band fight. I started shooting rubber bands at kids. they jumped up they were shooting rubber bands around. After about 10 minutes, it was like the energy went out of the situation. Everybody sat back down, went back to work. But you could see there was, you could feel there was joy in the room. And there hadn't been before. Mm-hmm. And some of, the, some of the boys went and they were picking up all the rubber bands and bringing them back to me. And it was interesting that they did that. They didn't just leave them laying there. They picked them all up, went back to work. Uh, at the end of that um, school year, uh, no accidents a year later. We had a big graduation. So, all these kids that other schools had told them they would never graduate, they might as well drop out of school, had come to us, and about 200, 220 of them all over Phoenix were graduating together. It was such a joyful occasion. And we didn't have like valedictorians and stuff. We had students that would say, Hey, I'd like to speak. We'd, you know, review their speeches, of course, and uh, take out some adjectives sometimes. That they might use, and uh, one of one of our students got up and he said, uh, "Oh, and so the um, the CEO of our corporation, because we had schools in twenty two states, was there at the graduation, and one of my students got up to speak, and he said, uh, he said there was one day uh, in my junior year that uh, Mister P started a rubber band fight, <laughs> and I was thinking oh, I might get fired now, but." Uh, He said, he said that day was so much fun. He said, I thought about dropping out. I thought I was never going to graduate, so I might as well just get a job. And he said, but after that day, uh, he said, I decided I didn't want to miss school because you never know what's going to happen there. And (laughs) so it was that that fun moment kept him in school for another year so he could graduate. And so, and it was something that was totally unplanned. There's no, uh rhyme or reason <laughs> necessarily for it, but it was something I just sensed that with these you know it was time to do something, and uh it was mm-hmm. I, that was a kind of magic how things when you're listening for these concepts and how you deal with people in relationships, some things kind of come out of the blue in the thought process that can be you know can be almost magical a lot of time.
0: Well, that's a great example of how one small act or one small event can have a really outsized impact on somebody's life or a group of people's lives. And I think this is a good point, Brian, to go ahead and start wrapping up because I know I've taken up enough of your time today. Thank you so much for chatting with me today and sharing Dr. Glasser's wisdom and your wisdom. I think a lot of his work is so applicable. It's so useful um, really in any domain. I know I'm going to try to find ways to incorporate these concepts both into my life at large and to my practice. If someone hears this conversation and wants to learn more, what resources can you point them towards? Where would you send them to learn more about choice theory and reality therapy?
1: Well, we have a lot of, uh of programs uh in training especially people like to go through it's a column basic intensive it's 3 or 4 days where you you get practice in all these things and learn all these and that's available on wglasser.com wglasser.com that's our uh US uh entity and if you wanted to know um, more about the international it's uh Wglasserinternational.org, and uh, you know, especially you know, if somebody is outside the United States, and they see this. There, there are many different countries where we have some uh, some involvement there, some trainers, and uh, that could be uh, very helpful. You know, like we're having this our conference in St. Louis in about two weeks, which is my hometown, so I'm pretty excited to go there. Got some great people there, some learning going on, and a lot of fun with the group of people because uh, uh, it can be fun with, with these folks who don't judge each other, hopefully, very much. <laughs> and, um, you know, but that, those are that. And if anybody wanted to email me, it's just brian at com is uh, my official email. And uh, i be glad to help anybody with anything. Uh, we're, you know, we're moving forward in the lead management or leadership part. Choice, le- choice theory leadership. Um, I wrote the book uh, "Connect and Lead: Choice Theory Leadership at Work." That's available on Amazon and Kindle. And um, you know, I incorporate a lot of the. You'll probably hear some of the same stories, but uh, uh, it's about how does this apply in the work world? And to, to me, that's my passion. We've got the counselors, we've got the educators. Now I want to work on the other piece, you know, to build that up even more.
0: Well, thanks so much, Brian. I'm really excited to dive further into the works of Dr. Glasser and learn more about choice therapy. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you. It's been a real privilege. Great to talk to you, James.
0: I hope you enjoyed my discussion on choice theory with Brian. Interesting and useful please follow or subscribe to Philosophy so you're notified when future episodes drop. Thanks for listening.